Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether they be, there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Tonight's sermon is entitled this, Love's Ethics. Love's Ethics. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that tonight you give me clarity of mind as we teach and preach your word. I pray, Lord, that the sermon would resonate in hearts. Lord, that it would make sense. And Lord, that it would reach beyond our head and would reach down into our heart and, Lord, would invoke change. And God, I pray that You'd help us to love others and to love You just exactly the way that You want us to. May uh, that uh, our love to You and love to others show the world around us exactly what it is that love is supposed to mean. We ask all this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last several Sunday nights, last night or last Sunday night we looked at uh, forgiveness which is love in a different way, but uh, we've looked at it, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, three out of the last four Sunday nights. And just to quickly review, guys, you can go ahead and put that next slide up there. Uh, first, we looked at love's endurance. And we're taking the different attributes of love out of 1 Corinthians 13 and making sure that we cover each one of them. Uh, we put, suffereth long, endureth all things, beareth all things, and never faileth. And we talked about how that God's love is a permanent love. Let me just say before we move on to the next one here by way of review, is that God does not love you based on your behavior. We don't serve God to earn His love. We serve God because of His love. And uh, the person who's sitting at home right now on Sunday night who ought to be in church, God loves them just as much as He loves you. And we don't come here to punch the clock to earn God's love. Uh, I gave my life to Christian ministry not because I wanted God to love me more than He loves you. I gave my life to Christian ministry because God loved me and He was calling me to that. His love is, per- is perfect and it endures forever. You can run as far from God as you want and that love is always going to be there. The next one we looked at was love's etiquette. We talked about uh, how that love is kind, it doth not behave itself unseemly, and it seeketh not her own. We talked about how that there is a certain behavior that accompanies love and that we are to behave in a way that conveys love to God and conveys love to others. And uh, it's not about being selfish, but rather it's about being selfless. It's taking uh, your desires uh, for what you want and setting the reward, your reward to the side and embracing your responsibility to love God and understanding that that reward will come if we focus on our responsibility. The third area we looked at, this would have been two weeks ago, was love's elevation. And we took the time to say that uh, love always elevates. What you love and who you love is what's going to be elevated in your life. If you love yourself, you're going to go out and you're going to have a mantra of pushing your own agenda and your own self on others. And by the way, if you do that, people are not going to like you very much. We all know people who are uh, self-promoting and they're always bragging on themselves and getting you to brag on them. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're to take the time to elevate God first in our life. In that sermon, we talked about how we're to prioritize our love it ought to be God first, others second, and then ourselves on down the line. And then even within that others, if you're married here, you ought to love your wife or your husband before you love your friends. And you ought to love your, uh, your family before you go out and you, you enjoy uh, ministering to others. I'll even say this, 
I don't know that I said this two weeks ago, but if I didn't, I'll get it in right here right now, is that I have known people who have loved the ministry more than they've loved their family. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Uh, you can love the ministry, uh, and we're called to love the ministry that God has called us to, but when your family starts to take a back seat and you start to lose your family, you're going to lose your ministry as well. You make sure that you, your family and that wife of yours uh, comes first. Yesterday, a friend of mine called me who's a rookie pastor like I am. Took a church in Western Maryland. And he, he told me on the phone yesterday, he said, My wife is a little discouraged because we've been going so hard and we really haven't seen a lot of results here where we're at. He's been there, I guess, uh, uh, he's been in the church for a little over a year. He's been the senior pastor for about five months. And I told him, I said, brother, I said, you've got to make sure your wife knows that you're taking care of her. I said, because if you lose her, you're going to lose it all. Uh, why? Because family, you've got to take care of the family. You, you get those priorities in order. Love elevates. Love elevates. It is not my job here as a senior pastor at White Oak Baptist Church to promote me. It's my job to promote him. By the way, that's your job too. If you're a Sunday school teacher in this church, if you're a bus captain in this church, we're not out trying to promote our names or our own agendas. It's not about how many people can look at you. It's not about how many praises and compliments you can get. It's about elevating the name of Jesus Christ. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And my job is to hold up Christ high. And your job, if you hold any leadership position in this church, is to hold up Christ high. So men will be drawn unto Him. What are we trying to do? We're trying to elevate Christ. Elevate Christ. Tonight, I want to look at this. Uh, love's ethics. Love's ethics. And we'll get the, the last, uh, uh, let's see, the last four uh, out of 1 Corinthians 13 uh, in under this topic. Thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity. But in truth, but rejoiceth in the truth, and then hopeth all things, and believeth all things. So love's ethics. Uh, take your Bibles with me, if you would, and hold your place in 1 Corinthians 13. But take your Bibles with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look in this passage two different times. Once at the beginning of the message, and then once toward the end of the message. And I want to take you to a verse that's commonly used in Christianity. In fact, I've been... Uh, in church my entire life, I've been saved for 28 years, and of all the verses that I've heard quoted out of the Bible, this one has to either be at the top or in the top three. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we find there it says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. You might ask this evening, is God's love ethical Toward me, Does God's love have a character uh, or behavioral system to it when it comes to me? And the answer is, yes, it does. Yes, it does. You see, uh, this verse teaches that God is ethical toward everyone that loves Him. He looks to take every circumstance in our life, both the ones that are easy and the ones that are hard, and He looks to mix them together in order to bring out the good. Bring out the good. I had a, I saw a pastor one time, uh, bring, he was a large church, he brought all of his staff up and put them across the platform and he handed them different ingredients to cookies. He gave one sugar, he gave another one vanilla, he gave another one flour, he gave the, another one a raw egg, and he had each one of them eat the ingredient that was in their hand. Um, not exactly, now the guy who had the sugar, boy, he was set, wasn't he? The guy that had the vanilla, you can stomach a little bit of vanilla. Uh, but the flour, 
um, the egg, the raw egg, cracking that thing open, putting it in a cup and, and drinking that down. He wasn't rocky, okay? Uh, so there, and the point the pastor was making is that none of these ingredients by themselves are any fun, but all of them together, boy, they make cookies. And we all enjoy cookies, don't we? God is going to bring different circumstances in your life, but you know what He's doing? He's trying to bring out the good. He's trying to bring out the good. He's ethical in what He does. And sometimes God steps in and He lets something hard happen in our life because He sees a rough edge that needs to be taken off here or an area here that needs to be improved. And He knows that that hard time is going to make us who we ought to be. His love is ethical in every way. Now, the word ethical means this. It means pertaining to or dealing with morals or the principles of morality pertaining to right and wrong in conduct. And I would ask you tonight is, is your love for God and for others ethical? Does it pertain to principles of morality? Uh, does it pertain to a conduct that, uh, that, that, that abstains from wrong and clings to right? Another way to put this is, does your love behave itself? Does your love behave itself when other people are not behaving themselves? When someone else mistreats you, do you mistreat them back? Or do you behave yourself? Is there a set of ethics there? I believe wholeheartedly that Christians must learn how, uh, to love, how love is to behave. I believe that if we will behave ourselves in our love for God and others, then we can show the world just exactly how it is that God wants to love them. You've heard this point made many times from this pulpit, no doubt, over the years. But my friend, you're the only Bible many people will ever read. You are a representation of Christianity, and you may be the best representation of Christianity that some people ever get. Is your love pure enough that when somebody mistreats you, they can see Christ's love in you? Or does that love not behave itself? Let's finish this sermon series out in 1 Corinthians 13 with four more principles about learning how to love like the Lord. Specifically, let's focus on love's code of ethics. Number one uh, tonight, notice love's innocence. Love's innocence. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. It says there uh, about love, doth not, or charity, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. And then notice this next phrase, thinketh no evil. Thinketh no evil. There is an innocency to love. There is a, uh, a purity uh, to love. Titus chapter 1 and verse 15 says this, Under the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. I have been around peers in the past. I remember in Bible college, I worked the bus route uh, for a year or two, and the, the, there were a couple of boys who were Bible college students there who I was around every weekend for several hours. And every time somebody said something, they found a way to turn it around and make it into a perverted joke. And you know what I had to do? I had to get away from those guys. I had to get off that ministry and I had to go somewhere else. You say, uh, Pastor, would a boy studying for Bible college be so vile and perverse? And unfortunately, I would say oftentimes that uh, there are guys like that at Bible college, but most of them don't make it. Most of them fade out and they don't, they don't make it into the ministry. Unfortunately, sometimes they do. But what happened was is their conscience was defiled. And so everything that was said to them became defiled. 
It ought to be that when you hear things that you assume the best about others and that there is an innocence there about you. It ought to be that when someone starts talking about sin, there's a level of innocence in you where you go, I I don't really even know what they're talking about. I've known people along the way who, uh, you get them at church and man, they know all the terms of the Bible. They can, they can stand toe to toe and have a theological discussion with you. But then they get to work and they know all the music of the world. And they can stand toe to toe and talk music with anybody at work on, on any genre of music. They, they, can, uh, they can give you a, a rundown on uh, what the book of Romans is and who it was written to and what each chapter means, but then when you get them talking about sitcoms and TV, they know what they're talking about there. Their love is not innocent. Their love is not innocent. Romans sixteen nineteen says this, For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad therefore in your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple, concerning evil. Simple concerning evil. Hey, as a Christian to a degree, you ought to bury your head in the sand when it comes to sin and you ought just not know every detail about everything that's going on around you. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 says this, Love not the world. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I can see what God ultimately is doing here through the Apostle John is He's giving us an ultimatum. He's saying, either love me with all your heart or love the world with all your heart. You can't do both. You can't pretend as though me and you are on good terms while you're running around over here and having a love affair with the world. How strong of a marriage would I have if I pretended as though everything was great between Angela and I and then I was sneaking out of the house and running around with another woman? How, how, uh, do you, how well do you think that would go over? She would pull me to the side and she'd say, look buddy, it's either me or her, make your choice. And God uh, is sick and tired of Christians who look at the world and, and have an uh, infatuation with the world and they flirt with the world and they know about the world and they don't want to be innocent concerning sin. They want to be right there with the sin and then they want to show up to church on Sunday with a suit and tie on the Bible under their arm and say, praise the Lord, preacher, preach away. And God says, wait a minute here, love not the world. In James 4, he even has even uh, more coarse words for those who choose the world. He says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with Christ. If you want to be a friend with the world, if you want to have a love for the world, then you are my enemy. You're an adulterer or an adulteress. Strong language. Let me just ask you some, something tonight. What are you watching on TV? You say, oh, uh, pastor, you preached on that this morning. Well, I'm going to preach on it again tonight. Amen? What are you, what are you watching on TV? What are you putting in those eye gates and in those ear gates? If you're not careful, you'll fall in love with things that are sin. Christian, do you have a crush on the world? Do you have a crush on the world? Do you know the names of Hollywood actors better than you know your Bible? Is there a love for secular music and impure God-hating secular ideology that is tempting you to uh, that, that they're trying to shove down uh, your throat? 
Is there this idea that uh, I can uh, hold hands with God and I can hold hands with the world and I can be uh, uh, I can be good in both worlds? And God says, "Listen, I don't want you to be ho- I want you to be hot or cold. I don't want you to be lukewarm. In fact, if you want to be lukewarm, I want to spew you out of my mouth." I would hear preachers as a kid preach about fence riding. They talk about having one foot in the world and one foot. Uh, in, in the church and riding that fence. And I thought, man, riding a fence, that would hurt. How, how does that hurt? Now you get this visual image, right? Uh, and, and let me just tell you, it, it hurts to fence ride. You need to pick one or the other. There ought to be an innocence to you uh, with your love. And there ought to be this uh, desire to love God with all your heart and affection that's there. And it ought not be that uh, when people start talking about sinful worldly things that you just really don't have any idea what they're talking about. And there's no appetite for you to want to stay there and be in that conversation. You're around the water cooler at work and the guys start wanting to talk about what happened on uh, American Idol, if that's even a show anymore. Or America's Got Talent. And listen, I'm not saying that everything on uh, America's Got Talent per se sin. I don't know. I don't know that I've ever really even watched the show, but uh, I've heard of it. But I would tell you this, is that there's enough garbage in there, you probably ought to stay away from it. And they start wanting to talk about that, and you jump right in, and you know what's going on. In Proverbs, we find the simple one who's wandering down the street toward uh, the loose woman. Why was he wandering down that street? Did he have intentions of her, uh, of going into her house and committing sin with her? I don't think he did. I think he had a curiosity towards sin. And I think that he wandered, the simple one, wandered down the street because he was curious about what sin was. And as he stumbled down upon that corner where that harlot stood, she was able to convince him to fall that night. But it begins because he allowed his innocence to be defiled. Notice there it says, thinketh no evil. Is your mind pure? Is there a purity in your heart and in your mind? And so we're looking at love's ethics, and we're talking about love's integrity. Number two, let's look, or rather love's innocence. Number two, let's look at love's integrity. Look with me at verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 13. It says there, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. My mind can't help but wonder to all of these police brutality cases of late where uh, a police officer is tangled up with someone in a lower income area and maybe uh, there's even some racial tension that's there and it's not really about justice being served. It's about the injustices they see of the past being made up in that one particular situation. You look at uh, some different cases that have happened along the way where a police officer has simply just been trying to defend himself against a criminal and now the community wants that police officer basically executed. They're not rejoicing in iniquity. They're rejoicing in the truth. I remember when the riots broke out in Baltimore some uh, year and a half ago. I remember turning on the TV and watching as that CVS store there in Baltimore burned. I've been in that CVS store, uh, obviously not recently, but I had been in that CVS store. I had walked up and down those streets as a teenager and and worked bus routes in that area. Shortly after Angela and I got married, we uh, we were bus captains of a Spanish route there in the inner city of Baltimore and 
some of those same streets that had those riots in. Uh, we had been there witnessing to people and seeing people saved. And it broke my heart. And what hurts even deeper and, and, and harder than that is that many of the police officers that were accused of things there had never really done anything wrong. But what did the lynch mob want? They wanted those people executed just because uh, they were bloodthirsty. It wasn't truth they were after. It was punishment that they were after. The Bible teaches us that charity doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rather it rejoices in the truth. John chapter 8 and verse 32 says this, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The truth shall set you free. It ought to be that mom, dad, when there is something that's going on at home with one of your children, that you seek the truth, and that you go after the truth, and that you hold up the standard of truth. Let me go on further and say this, is that your children ought to see that you don't only hold them to a standard of truth, but you hold yourself to a standard of truth. Dad, when was the last time that you apologized to your children when they saw you doing something wrong? Mom, when was the last time you sat your children down and said, listen, I did this and it was out of bounds, and and I have apologized to God over what I've done. And I'm apologizing to you because you saw it. You say, oh, I could never do that, Pastor. Listen, there's a spirit of humility there. And what you're saying is that even I, as the leader of the home, must submit underneath the Word of God because God's Word is the standard of truth in my heart. And I want to have a level of integrity. I may not be perfect, but when I mess up, I'm going to own my mistake and I'm going to apologize to the ones that saw me do less than right. There in that verse there in 1 Corinthians, it says that rejoiceth not in iniquity. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 9 reminds us that fools make a mock at sin. But among the righteous there is favor. Fools make a mock at sin. Something that will never happen here at this church during any activity that we ever have. And please, those of you who are in charge of activities, listen very closely to what I'm about to say. We will never, ever, ever, ever mock and make fun of the sin of homosexuality in any skit that ever goes on at this church. We will never have a man put on a dress and pretend to be a woman in order to entertain and make people laugh. You say, Pastor, why would you say that? Because fools make a mock at sin. And charity does not rejoice in iniquity, but rather rejoices in the truth. Have you found that some people are just difficult to love? They're hard to love? A mature outlook toward loving others is that we must look past the way that they're treating us and look at why they're behaving the way they're behaving. Please sit up and listen to what I'm saying right here. I could release someone in a room full of 50 people, and that person could mistreat 49 of the 50, but if they're kind to you, then you'll like them. I could release that same person into a room of 50, and they could be kind to everybody in that room but you, and you'll make up your mind that you don't like them and they're not a good person. Boy, that's a selfish way of looking at someone, isn't it? When someone mistreats us or is unkind to us, remember, charity rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Why are they treating me that way? What is the hurt that has taken place in their life that has brought them to this type of behavior toward me? Is it something I've done toward them? If it has, then you correct it. If it is not something you've done toward them, then you realize that deep down inside, they're hurting. And you need to try to love them. 
There's a story told about a traveling evangelist who went into a restaurant with the local pastor he was there preaching for. And that, the waitress they got that day at that lunch hour was cold and rude to the men as she approached them for their drink order. The men gave their drink order, which was just simply water with lemon. And it took her about 15 minutes to show back up to the table with their drink order. And you know how it works, right? We've all eaten out enough. The water is put down on the table and then are you ready to order, right? Well, this girl didn't do that. She put her water down and the water down. She turned around and left. Disappeared in the back. It didn't come back for 15, 20 more minutes. Finally, she comes back out and they've got to flag her back down over to the table. We've all had these kind of waiters or waitresses at some point, I'm sure. And the girl came over to the table, really, really, really bad attitude, just attitude dripping off of her. And the, the pastor and the evangelist were kind and gave the girl their food order, only for, to wait another 35 minutes for their food to come out cold. And the food was put down in front of the men, um, really just kind of slung on the table. And the girl left. Their drinks were empty, no refills on the drinks. The pastor and the evangelist ate their food the way it was. Went to the front and got the bill from uh, the gal at the front. Paid the bill and walked out the door. As they were making their way to the car, the waitress came running out, chasing these men in the parking lot. And said, sir, wait a minute, to the evangelist, wait a minute. You, you, you both left something that belongs to you. And in her hand, she held a $50 bill. And the, the evangelist said, no ma'am, that's your tip. And she began to cry. She said, oh, but sir, I don't deserve this. In fact, my manager made me take this off the table and bring it out to you because he said, my service to you was awful. I'm in the middle of being reprimanded by him because I'm just having a terrible day. And that evangelist and that pastor turned to the lady and she said, he said, listen, I saw that you were having a bad day. And I didn't want to make it worse. I wanted to help you. The, the evangelist said to the girl, he said, why don't you just take a minute and tell me what's going on in your life? And that girl put her head down and she began to cry. She said, I'm a single mom. My 13-year-old is at home watching my baby. My baby has a fever. I called my boss and told him I couldn't come to work today because my baby was sick. And my boss said, that if I didn't come to work, I would be fired. And I must have this job. So here I am, against my own will, just so I won't lose my job. That pastor took out a track and led that gal to the Lord standing there in the parking lot. The restaurant wasn't really all that busy. Why was that able to happen? Because they were not rejoicing in iniquity. They were rejoicing in the truth. They could look past the way that gal was treating them and see, hey, there's a deeper hurt here. And I'm going to extend some love beyond that hurt. And I'm going to help, even though she's lashing out at me and her behavior toward me. That young gal was saved. Hey, how would have you handled that? Sometimes Christians are the rudest people at restaurants. Let me insert this here. If you're going to leave a track on the table with my name on it, make sure you leave a sizable tip. If you're not going to tip well, don't leave a track with my name on it. You say, what's a sizable tip? You better leave at least 18% or you don't leave, don't leave a track with my name on it. I don't want a bad name based on your bad tipping. Amen? 
you say, but I base the tip on my service. Can I, can I encourage you not to do that? Could I encourage you to be generous in your tip and to leave the gospel behind? Oftentimes, especially if I'm leaving a cash tip, I'll tuck it inside of the track and I'll leave that track on the table. I want them to pick that track up and go, wow, that's a much larger than normal tip. And look at this good news of salvation that's here. And I don't base the tip on the service. I like my drink to be refilled when it gets right below halfway, just like you do. But if it doesn't, I'm not going to be mean and rude and nasty to that person. Love's integrity. Again, 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Number three, let's move on. Love's ideology. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7. It says there, Beareth all things. We looked at that in a previous week. Notice this next one. Believeth all things. Believeth all things. Now, let me clarify what this does and doesn't mean. Uh, this doesn't mean that love or charity is gullible. Uh, it, rather, it means that love is not skeptical. It doesn't look everyone with a skeptical eye like, what are you really trying to get out of me? What are you really after? Someone's nice to you and the attitude is, okay, uh-huh, what do you want out of me? Love, love gives people the benefit of the doubt unless there is proof otherwise. This requires a childlike type faith in others. I told the uh, Master Club workers Wednesday night when we were training, 85% of those who get saved get saved between the ages of 4 and 14. That's a huge percentage. Why is that? It's because they're at an age where life has not taken advantage of them, and so they're not yet skeptical. Can I tell you something? If you're an adult here today, life has made you skeptical. You get that call on the phone. You just won a free cruise to the Bahamas. You know what you do? Same thing I do. Click. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I think Angel and I may have fallen for that the first year we were married. And we have never fallen for anything like that since. Let me just give you young folks a piece of advice, okay? If it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Okay, That may not always be the case, but usually it is. We're skeptical, aren't we? But children aren't skeptical. So when the Gospel is explained to them, they don't look at God with a skeptical eye and say, what are you really after with me? No, they just bow their head and they believe. They believe. And the Bible says that we've got to come to Christ like a child, with that childlike faith. Can I tell you that today, you've got to love others the same way, with a childlike love, with a love that is not skeptical. A love that gives people the benefit of the doubt. I remember in my teenage years, uh, I got to a place where I was rather skeptical and I would always say, yeah, well, I think this person, what they're really trying to do is this. And my mom was always there to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I'd say to my mom, I'd say, Mom, you always give people the benefit of the doubt. And she said, because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm not talking about being gullible. But I'm talking about loving others regardless of what ulterior motive that you might think that they might have. Oftentimes when someone does hurt us, it causes us to want to clam up and refuse to reopen our hearts to love anybody else. It's, I opened my heart up and I made myself vulnerable. And by the way, the more deep you love someone, the more vulnerable you become to that person. 
I can be walking down the street and bump into someone and they may turn around and cuss me out. If I don't know who they are, I just kind of, <laughs> okay, I don't know you, whatever. But if Angela were to use those words with me, it hurts. It hurts. And she doesn't use those words with me, amen? Because the more you love someone, the more vulnerable you make yourself to them. What oftentimes happens with people is they open their heart and someone takes advantage of them while they're vulnerable. And then what they do is they shut their heart up and say, I'm not going to love anybody anymore. Because the last time I did, I got hurt. We encourage you, don't do that. Listen, God opened His heart and loved Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know what they did? They took advantage of Him. He didn't close His heart up and say, I'm not going to love humanity anymore. No, He left that heart open and He said, I'm going to send My Son to a cross to die for Him. And I'm going to love them anyway. Don't you know, Christ, that you'll hang on that cross and people will, uh, by the millions of times a minute, take your name in vain. They'll curse you. Uh, they'll call you bigoted. They'll call you narrow-minded. Yes, I know that's going to happen, but I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to love them anyway. Learning to love like the Lord. Someone once penned these words. They said, people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you uh, spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness... They may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. But do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. When you get to heaven, God is not going to... Listen very closely to this. When you get to heaven, God is not going to judge you based on the way people responded to your love. You're going to be judged when you get to heaven based on the way you loved people. And so you go love them the way Christ wants you to love them. Love's ideology. Hey, love says it doesn't matter how you treat me. I'm going to love you anyway. Christ, it doesn't matter what hurt you allow to come in my life. I'm going to love you anyway. You say, that's foolish, that's gullible, that's senseless. No, it's not. It's scriptural. And had Christ not had that same mentality toward me and you, we'd all be headed to hell. Learning to love. Learning to love like the Lord. Number four, love's inspiration. Look with me back at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7. Love's inspiration. It says there, beareth all things, believeth all things. Notice this, hopeth. All things. Hopeth all things. Hope carries with the idea of believing and trusting in something based on an idea that has not yet been proven. Go back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I told you we'd be there toward the end of the sermon. And we're going to look at 
two more different passages here in Romans chapter 8 talking about this concept of, of learning to love like the Lord and, uh, and, and, and how that love is such an integral part of our relationship with God. And it's a two-way street. Look with me at verse 24 and see what the Bible has to say about hope and how that charity, uh, how that it, it, it hopeth in all things. It says there in verse 24, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? Why doth he yet hope for? You say, what is hope? Hope is believing in facts that, uh, uh, mental facts that we might have, but something we've not yet really ever seen. Listen, I've never seen Jesus Christ with my own two eyes. And if you claim that you have, you haven't. Jesus Christ doesn't reveal Himself in this way anymore. In fact, if you dig deeper into the doctrine of 1 Corinthians 13, that very truth is taught later there in the chapter. But Christ does not reveal Himself to us anymore. You say, well, why do you believe so strongly in Him? Because I hope in Him. I hope in Him. I have a hope of, of eternal life that one day God is going to come back, or rather Christ is going to come back, God the Son, in the clouds, and He's going to rapture me to heaven. And that is the hope of eternal life that I have. Someone has said that if you can uh, convince a man there was no hope, he would curse the day he was born. Hope is an indispensable quality of life. Years ago, the S-4 submarine was rammed by another ship and quickly sank. The entire crew was trapped in its prison house of death. Ships rushed to the scene of disaster off the coast of Massachusetts. We don't know what took place down in the sunken submarine, but we can be sure that the men clung bravely to life as the oxygen slowly gave out. A diver placed his helmet ear to the side of the vessel and listened. He heard a tapping noise. Someone, he learned, was tapping out a question in the dots and dashes of the Morse code. And the question was, came slowly, Is there any hope? Is there any hope? This seems to be the cry of humanity. Is there any hope? Hope indeed is the basis of all human existence in Christ. A man uh, who was very keen on nature took a city slicker out into a park. And in that park, he began to write down on a piece of paper all the different types of animals he could hear making a noise. And that city slicker looked at that paper and he said, how can you hear all of those different noises? I don't understand how you're able to hear all these different animals. I can't hear any of them. And he said, because your ear is not trained to hear them. He said, watch this. There were people walking up and down that walking path there in that park. The man reached in his pocket and got a, a handful of coins. And there on that sidewalk, he dropped the coins. And immediately, everybody stopped and turned and looked. He said, see, they're trained to listen for money. My friends, we go through life and our ears are not tuned to the right thing. We don't see and hear the lost souls of men. What we see and hear is we see and hear how people treat us and we're so shallow in our thinking that we think they mistreated us so I don't like them. My friends, they have a soul that's hurting. They have a soul that needs you to love them. 
What is love's inspiration? It's that one day Christ is going to return. But that ought to inspire us both to be excited about His coming back. It ought to also inspire us to love others because of His coming back. It ought to inspire us to work hard. Look with me at verses 35 through 39. And I want to finish this series tonight uh, on, on the love of God. Learning to love like the Lord by seeing just how deep and serious Christ is about His love toward us. How much does Christ love you? How much are we to love others? I'm going to read these verses. I'm going to quickly give you four concluding thoughts from the series. And then we'll shut it down. It says there in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, Christ loves you. And He's commanded you to go out and love others. Let me quickly give you four concluding thoughts tonight. Number one is this. Love is methodical. Love is methodical. It's planned. It's planned. Some of you in here don't really walk with God. Oh, you talk to Him when you're in a desperate moment. And you maybe treat Him a little bit like Santa Claus. God, I need this. Help me out right now. Some of you might have adult children that don't call you very often. You don't have a bad relationship with them. They just don't call you very often. But you're guaranteed they're going to call you when they need money, aren't they? Some of you might even have teenagers and they come home from school and it's, did you have a good day at school? Yes. Did you eat your lunch? Yes. One word answers. But wait till they need you to give them $20. Boy, they seemingly find a vocabulary all of a sudden, don't they? Love is methodical. Love is taking the time to think through how to care for others. Number two, love is spelled... Ready for this? T-I-M-E. T-I-M-E. I I picture a man who comes home from work, plops down in the Lazy Boy, uh, gets a glass of tea or soda, and turns on Fox News or maybe Sports Center and spends the evening there in that chair and then gets up and goes to bed and tells his wife, I love you, honey. And she says, you didn't spend one moment of meaningful conversation with me. How can you tell me you love me? A dad who is running hard and running through life and running here and running there and, and gets home and he, he, he sees his children right before he goes, they go to bed and day after day after day spends no time with him and then looks at his kids and says, I love you. And they're thinking to themselves, but you never spend any time with me. How can you tell me that you love me? Now let me just pause there and say this. I know life is busy. And I know there are seasons of time where uh, there are seasons where time is not there always give. But can I teach you the replacement principle? If I have uh, here here's how I here's how I treat my family as a pastor. If I have promised my wife or my kids uh, that I'm going to do something with them on a particular day and church ministry some emergency comes up and takes me away 
for that uh, to them, then here's what I do. I make up for it with double time. They understand that I'm on call 24-7 as a pastor. And somebody might have some big emergency. And by the way, if you have a big emergency, I want you to call me. I want to be there for you. I don't want you to find out on the back end that you had some major emergency and and I wasn't able to be there for you. If you want me there, I want to be there. Don't hesitate to call me no matter what time of the day or night it is. I don't work in 8 to 4 or 9 to 5. I'm your pastor 24-7. And my family understands that and my family is understanding that. And if I get taken away from a planned activity, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it up for them extra special the next time. And that's how you ought to handle it. Listen, some of you are on call with work. And life might call you in. Work might call you in. And you have to miss a planned activity. That ought to excite your children or your wife because they know it's going to be extra good when you do make it up. But love is spelled T-I-M-E. Are you spending time with the people that you love? Are you spending time with God? Are you spending time appropriately with the people that you're supposed to love? Number three from the series, life, love is selfless. Love is selfless. Lust is selfish. And so if you see that selfishness is creeping in, then remind yourself that you're not loving your loved one. You're lusting after uh, yourself. And you're expecting something out of the relationship there that is impure. Love is selfless. I knew an older married couple at one point. Every time it snowed, they had a contest to see who could clean off the other one's car first. Can I tell you that? A wonderful marriage. A wonderful marriage. Now, ladies, I'm not saying you need to go out in the snow and, and clean your husband's windshield off. But that's the type of mentality I'm talking about. Um, on your anniversary, uh, there ought to be a contest to see who can serve the other one more. We all know anniversaries are for the women, right guys? Love, love is selfless. Number four, love is an emotion that follows a decision. Let me, let, me, uh, let me finish with this. I think this really will be a good way to end the series. Love is not just an emotion. I've, I've heard some pastors get up and say that love is not an emotion at all, and that is false. There is emotion that accompanies love. But love, that emotion of love, follows the decision of love. Do you know there are times I do not want to go soul winning and fulfill my obligation as a, as a Christian? Notice I said my obligation as a Christian, not as a pastor. That's an obligation for every Christian. But you know what I do? I make a decision that even though I don't feel like doing it, because I love God, I'm going to get a handful of gospel tracts and I'm going to go invite people. You know what I find out every time after I go do it? There's an emotion toward God of love that follows my decision to love God. You know, there's some mornings I wake up and the emotion of love toward Angela isn't the way it ought to be and it's not her fault, it's because I woke up a grouch. How many of you ever wake up grouchy? Can we just be human here for a minute? You know what I've got to do? I've got to choose to love her. And you know what happens? The emotion of love follows the choice of love. She she, uh, sometimes doesn't feel like loving me because I'm cantankerous. Right? She's never cantankerous, but sometimes I'm cantankerous. And so she has to choose to love me and that emotion follows. Maybe you're here today and I, look, I've seen couples sit in my office throughout the years and they say, we want a divorce because we just don't love each other anymore. 
And I'm here to say that love is a choice. The two of you have to look at each other and you have to choose to go back and love each other. And that emotion will come. That emotion will come. There's a story about a couple. And I'll finish with this. There's a story about a couple who were just determined their marriage was through. This wife was really, really upset with her husband and wanted to get him back. So they went and saw a professional counselor, a Christian professional counselor. And the Christian professional counselor said, here's what, here's what you need to do, ma'am. So for the next six months, you need to make him breakfast in bed. She said, why? I don't like him. I can't stand him. Why am I making him breakfast in bed? She said, no, no, no. Just, just stay with me here. Hang on, hang on. Make him breakfast in bed. When he gets home from work, sit him down on the couch and take his socks and shoes off. Wash his feet and give him a foot rub. Give him a shoulder massage every night before he goes to bed. Cook him the biggest dinner you can cook him. Treat him like a king. And after six months, walk out and leave him. She said, you'll really get him. And she thought, you know what? That is so maniacal, I'm going to do it. (laughs) And so, the Christian counselor said, I want you to come back and see me five months in and let me know how it's going. So five months later, that, that gal came walking in. He said, how's the plan going? You ready to leave him? And she said, leave him? I love that man. I'm not going anywhere. What happened? There was a choice to love, and the emotion followed. The emotion followed. Now, men, you ought to be just as serving to your wife as that wife was to her husband. Let's make a choice to love like the Lord, and let's watch as the world around us, those who are in our world, boy, they begin to see Christianity at its best. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed tonight. Thank you for your attention. I hope that